John chapter 11, please. I probably need to give you a little context uh, on the story with which I start today, because we don't have it here, although we used to have it in the chapel, and as you'll see in a few weeks when we occupy the chapel again, we don't have it over there anymore, but uh, a lot of churches through the years adopted a stage design where on either side, at the far edge, was a pit, if you will, a blocked off space where they would put the piano on one side and the organ on the other side. And the church that I served before I came here had an incident in it that occurred over at the organ pit. And in this particular instance, one of the deacon's sons was probably coming out of uh, elementary school, going into middle school, somewhere in that general age span. And during the invitation of a service there, my dad was pastor, and he says that, During the invitation, this young man got up out of his seat and made his way down the aisle, and as my dad moved to greet him and to see, you know, counsel with him down front, the kid immediately veered away from my dad and went over and knelt down on a little bit of a step that had a uh, a kind of a, I guess, a rail of sorts in front of it, right next to the organ. And he leaned over like this on that rail, and he put his hands together like this, and It looked like he was doing serious business with the Lord. And so the pastor, my dad, decided to give him some space and let him do that. And the invitation ground along and they had reached the number of verses they thought they would do for the invitation. And he was still over there by the organ. And so they added another verse and they sang another verse of the invitation. And he was still over there. And so they added another one. But at the end of that one, when he was still over there, his daddy Figured something was up, and so he got up, and he walked over to where his son was, and he knelt down next to him and put his arm around him, and he said, "Uh, son, you okay? Is that something we need to talk about? You you see, you've been praying here for a while, and he said, oh, no, Dad, I I just always wondered how that organ worked, and I thought I'd come up here and just check it out while we're in the middle of the service. (laughs) Which pushes me to talk about the Lord's Supper, because I happen to believe that many Christian people regularly work through services like this where we celebrate the Lord's Supper together and they don't really know what's going on. It's not that they haven't been exposed to it. They know the trappings of it. They know that you're supposed to do the bread first and then the, okay, so it's not wine. I hate to tell you that. Some of you might be a little disappointed, but uh, it's grape juice here. We, we know that. Those are things we know about it, but I'm convinced that there are many Many Christians in our day who are like that boy when it comes to this, they just kind of want to study it a little bit to see how it works. That pushes me a little bit into uh, rethinking the Lord's Supper, and I want to do that with you today, and we do it together around the fifth I am statement that Jesus gives in John's gospel. So in John 11, we find this fifth statement where John seven different times in his gospel will, will have Jesus saying, I am, and then he'll give a point of reference who he was. Like, for instance, we talked about the bread of life, and he said, I am also, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. That was last week. And this week, we're going to find that Jesus makes an I am statement that's a little harder for us to wrap our minds around, I think. So in John chapter 11, we, we find that it's a funeral. 
Lazarus has died. It's the same passage where we find another one of those, actually the seventh of those signs of miracles that Jesus did that all underscore who he was as the Son of God. But in this case, Lazarus has died. That pushes me to this observation, and it kind of becomes a thread that drives through the whole sermon today. Death has a way of visiting us. Our church has been visited with that again this week where one of our families is dealing with the grief of a lost loved one. That pushes us. How how do you deal with grief? It's a force for us, and it for this grief is it, and it sometimes seems to just set in on us. Death, especially, locks in on us when we least expect it, and it forces us to do battle. Our family went through this in a pretty pronounced way a couple of years ago, where my brother-in-law, who was, I don't know, not, not even fifty-five years old, took his own life—a life taken too young, we thought. And we were forced to deal with all of that that comes with that. And as a double shot, we were in Denison, had driven up there for the funeral services, and we got there in time for an evening meal before the next day's funeral. And while we sat down for that evening meal, we got the phone call that Teresa's stepfather had passed away. So in one week's time, we did double duty And I can tell you without any kind of hesitation that grief, when it sets in, uh, does serious work for us. How should we deal with that? We get some insights in this particular passage, but before we get to the insights, let me make this this statement. I, I don't know if you saw the sign as you were coming in, and the title for this message is GPS for your soul. Death is one of those things, and grief is one of those things especially, that positions us, and it reveals something about our spiritual position, how we deal with those things that come with it. And, and that, that just bubbles out of this passage in John chapter 11. And I want you to kind of lock in on this GPS thing. I know all of us take advantage of that. You have on your iPhones, if, you're, if you have an iPhone, you may have it turned on the Find My Phone thing. Um, I had a friend of mine who owned a trucking company and he kind of blazed the trail with putting GPS receivers on his trailers because he had them in Mexico and all across the United States and he was losing them uh, somehow at uh, truck stops, et cetera. And so he, he installed these things so that he could find them where they were. And so with these satellites that are there and you can go online and I, I went to physics.org and I had a brain cramp and I had to get out of it. But uh, <laughs> the GPS is an amazing thing. And it positions by satellite and all kinds of stuff. Like I said, I got a brain cramp. I had to get out of it. But all kinds of stuff helps us know this is definitively where I am or where something else is. Grief has a way of positioning us. It reveals something of our spiritual state. We find that in this passage. Let me read the passage and we'll come back and highlight what I'm talking about. So we begin reading in John chapter 11, verse 17. Jesus at this point has gotten the word that Lazarus has, has died. And so verse 17 says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And let me just stop there for a moment. I, I know that you know, I, I'm going to have to read all of these, but I want to stop every once in a while and, and make a note or two. 
Here's one of the things that hits us when we confront death. As a pastor, I run into this all the time. At that time when we need to be dealing with the grief of what's happened and the loss that we're dealing with, all of a sudden now we have to do the business of dying. I'm always aware of that as a pastor. A family has to deal with funeral homes and a family has to deal with financial stuff. At the time, they at least want to have to do all of those things. That's part of the process for us. And in walks the preacher and says, okay, we need to plan the funeral here. And it becomes this mess of, of conflicted feelings and thoughts. So back to this verse. By the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And so in those four days, consider what his two sisters have been going through, the the thought processes they had and the business of dying that they were having to deal with. And so we move on forward. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. Here's the I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet Shall he live? And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's go back now. Let me pull a few other verses together here to help us see how grief has a way of positioning us as it relates to where we are spiritually. In the death of Lazarus, we come to this statement in verse 19. It it, it sounds easy enough for us, but in first century Jewish life, there is some stuff going on behind the scenes that helps us understand a little bit about where Martha especially, but also her sister Mary are. So in verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. One of the things that happened first century Jewish life, when someone would die like this, there was an obligatory period of mourning. It was not just that family that would be in mourning, it would be the community at large. John is careful to write that into this for us. He, he lets us see that Bethany is just a little ways away from Jerusalem and he immediately follows up and all these people are coming to mourn with them. This was a picture of first century Jewish life. When someone dies, it is a community grief event. But it's more than that. They were obliged to hire two flute players. This is not just this family. This is generally speaking in first century Jewish life. To hire two flute players to play dirges and that kind of thing as a point of reference to let everybody know what had happened. They even, many families, would hire women to go to the tomb and pay them to weep. This, this was a big deal for them. Death and grief was something that was a community event for them. And in the midst of that, Jesus shows up and Martha has the opportunity to have a one-on-one with him and she gives the party line exposing where she is spiritually in her soul, if you will. 
Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That is not a compliment. That's an accusation. And so deep within her, she's dealing with Jesus who later, as we read already, she will say, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, but I have this against you. You weren't here. We sent for you. You didn't care. You didn't show up. Oh, well, you showed up late. I've heard that. I might have even said that in one way or another in some of the deaths that I've dealt with. God, why didn't you stop this? But she really toes the party line in verse 24 after Jesus makes the comment to her, your brother will rise again. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This is one of those messianic hope kind of a statements. It's her way of saying, okay, it's hopeless now. This event is done, but there comes a day that he will rise again. Okay, I get that, the resurrection. That's what she's saying. But that positions her. All of these things work together for us to see that Martha is in a position here well, none of us are going to falter for that. She's been through and going through something that was horrible for her and for the rest of that age. But in the midst of all of this, here's Jesus, and he has some different point of reference. And I, I say all of that about Martha so that we can see just how differently positioned Jesus is. We go back into verses 1 through 16. We'll find that Jesus received word that Lazarus was sick. Jesus purposely stalls. He has discussions with his disciples about that. And finally, Jesus says, okay, so we're going to go. And I'll read a couple of those verses here in just a second. But in the midst of all of that stuff, Jesus intentionally moves as he waits for Lazarus to die. That doesn't sound all that loving. This is one of those passages I'm going to encourage us today to uh, kind of settle into the passage and be as real as we possibly can and react to it the way we, po- we probably would if it was us in the midst of it. And so in all of this, we'll look at verse 4 and let's just see what happens here. So, but when Jesus heard it, that is, Lazarus was ill, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, I don't want to state this too strongly, um, but... Did you, did you hear what I read there? Now, we know the rest of the story, right? Does Lazarus die? Yes. Okay, so this section, got it? This section, you still got another chance, right? So, does Jesus die? Yeah, I mean, does Lazarus die? Absolutely he does. Then why does Jesus say to his disciples, this illness does not lead to death? All right, so I said it this way in the early service. Maybe make sure you get it, all right? If you're going to call me a heretic, be sure you're listening with both ears and you quote me right. Either Jesus was just wrong about this or Jesus knows something that the rest of those people did not know. Because clearly Lazarus does die. Clearly, this illness does lead to his death. So what is Jesus saying here? And you know me, I'm always going to go to, he knows something. Matter of fact, we're going to unpack that as we work through this. Jesus knows what's up, but he makes a statement that intentionally, for us at least, helps us see. He doesn't see this the way Martha did. If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus is already saying there's more to this than what it looks like. So we see verse 11, we jump down a little bit further. And after saying these things, he said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but I go to awaken him. And so again, here's one. Is, is he hedging his bets a little bit or is he doubling down on what he knows is the reality of this? Jesus comes from a position, a spiritual position that nobody else in this mix has. He sees things differently. He says things that cause us to step back and go, now wait a minute, what's going on there? Which brings me to verses 23 and 25 and 26 again. The I am statement, verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Another one of those things. This is, this is different than where she is. Verse 25, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. What does that mean exactly? What does it mean when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? We can get, I am the good shepherd. That makes perfect sense. If we understand the background on shepherding in the first century, we, we get, I am the door for the sheep. We get that one. The bread of life is not that hard for us to get. We get, we get these I am statements that Jesus gives, but this one is, this one's different. This one's a little harder to wrap our minds around, I think. I am the resurrection and the life. What exactly does that mean? We're going to come to that in a moment, but let me take you just as the final uh, powerful statement that we have that Jesus sees this whole thing differently than they did. If we were to keep reading, we would find that Jesus has this discussion with her. He goes to the tomb. He's been there. Now jump with me over to verse 33 and we read this. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word that is using, used here, using here, the word that is used here is a word that has lots of emotion attached to it. We might use the word outrage. When Jesus saw them weeping, he was outraged. He was indignant that they would weep over this situation. Now, does that seem callous to you? It, it, seems, it seems almost as if if we just take it at face value, it seems almost as if Jesus is at arm's length and holding them at arm's length about this and going, come on, really, seriously, are y'all really upset about this? But Jesus, we should always give him more credit than we tend to want to because in this place, Jesus was positioned differently than these sisters were. So let's talk about resurrection. Because resurrection for us is that element in the Christian life that helps us, it provides a framework, if you will, for handling death and grief and those other things, and handling life, really. A couple of weeks ago on Easter, the message that I preached was tied to the central part of the, of the plan of salvation. And that is tied to the cross itself and Jesus on the cross. And in that, one of the things that we said and we push on a regular basis here is that Jesus himself was God's final fix for sin. He is the cure for the curse of sin. And so the cross itself and the cross event with all the stuff that goes around it, Jesus' arrest and the trials and the beating and ultimately the crucifixion that led to his death, all, to his death all of that together is God taking care of the sin problem that we had. Now, there's a big thing that we could talk at length about and get very nuanced and different areas of it, so let me just see if I can boil it down to this for us. Sin is that which separates us from God 
and moves us to replace worshiping our creator for worshiping other things, usually ourselves. We love to worship us. Well, that's probably not true for you. You probably love to worship you, just like I love to worship me. Now, we don't ever say that. We're much too sophisticated for that. But if the essence of sin is control and it is that part of us that says, I will be God, that is a pollution of God's design for creation. And so when we allow sin, well, sin is part of us. It is a curse on us all the way back to Adam. And so when that happens and we embrace that sin of our life, which we all do, then that separates us from God. We are separated because of our sin. Jesus is the fix for that. He took on us, uh, took on him, our sin. He became sin on our behalf, Scripture says. What we find on the cross is Jesus as the one of God, the son of God, the one who was designated to fix sin. He is the final solution to the curse of sin. And because of his death on the cross, we all have the opportunity to have a relationship with God, to have that bridge built between us and God, to have fellowship based on the relationship with him. It's not possible outside of Jesus Christ. If it weren't for the cross, we could not do that. That's the message of Easter. Now, I know many of you are going to go, wait a minute, the message of Easter is the resurrection. But you see, that puts us right back into this dilemma. What does the resurrection mean, really? If it weren't for the cross, there is no forgiveness for sin. Then why the resurrection? And here's my best answer for that. I think it's born up through Scripture all the way through. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ after the death on the cross is the tangible proof that he was, in fact, the Son of God who was a cure for sin. Nobody else gets resurrected like that. Now, we could say, no, Lazarus got resurrected. Jesus brought some other people back to life. Yeah, but they all died again. Jesus didn't. Jesus, as the Son of God, who was the sacrifice, he is the one who cured the curse of sin for us. The the resurrection is the evidence of that. It is God's proof to us that he cured sin's curse. That brings us back to 11, chapter 11 of John. All of those things being what they are, it still leaves us wondering, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? Here's what I think it means. Here's what I think Jesus is trying to say to her. I am the resurrection and the life is another way of saying that I am the way that you move from death to life and living. I'm going to come back to that last little part of that. Let's make sure we got this right. This is fundamental stuff for all of us. All of our life hinges on how we understand and handle this truth. Was Jesus really the Son of God? John writes his gospel, seven different statements, I am, and he gives the characteristic. He gives seven different, actually I've said eight because resurrection is one of those different signs or miracles that Jesus performed that nobody else did that underscore the fact that he was in fact the son of God. And so on the cross, Jesus takes our sin. He takes the curse of sin and he defeats it. 
And the resurrection is the proof of that for us. That all being true, what Jesus is saying when he says to Martha and by extension to all of us is, I am the way from death to life for you. That, that probably needs to be illustrated, so let me do that a little bit for you. Now, I had to explain this a little bit in the second service, I mean, first service today. I don't think I'll have to explain it quite as much today. Uh, I want you to think about the walking dead with me for a few moments. Hey, come on. I know most of you know what that is. You're just acting like you don't because you're in church, but it's okay. It's all right. So there's this TV program. If you don't know what the walking dead is, there's this TV program, and the whole premise of it is that there is this... Um, a virus, I guess it is, that wipes through the population, not just of America, but around the world, and people die, like by the droves. There's, there's actually just a handful of people left. They're scattered all over the place, and for whatever reason, the, the virus doesn't get to them unless they get bitten by one of... Okay, so now we're already into what I'm talking about, right? So the idea is, in The Walking Dead, that people die from the virus. They die, but they come back to life as zombies, And these zombies are intent on eating the flesh of people who are alive. You with me? You're wondering how you missed this on TV, aren't you? But here's my premise, okay? First of all, that's not resurrection. But here's my real premise. Those people, if that were to be... Okay, for all of you holier than nows out there, okay, let's go backwards a little bit. This is the same premise as Frankenstein or... Dracula are the ones that we all grew up with, those of us who are a little bit more seasoned in life. So here's the deal, though. To be one of those, you might argue, well, you know, you get the virus, you still get to live after that. But that's no life, right? What kind of life is it where you walk having to drag one foot? They all seem, all those zombies seem to be dragging one foot around. I don't get that. I guess it's just good TV. I don't know, but... What, what kind of life is it if the only, you, you never die. Even when you get dismembered, you never die. And you live with this voracious appetite to eat people. I know that sounds like a lot of churches, but that's not really what he's talking about here. This, this is that deal where we talk about, okay, now be really careful how you hear this. This is sometimes the way we talk about the Christian life, right? So we're resurrected with Jesus. We're, that, our picture is baptism, Right? We're buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And that's a picture, that's a symbol for us, much like uh, um, resurrection was. The visible image is such that sometimes in our church, in our spiritual lives, remember our GPS position for the soul, sometimes the way we live our life out is kind of like those zombies in The Walking Dead. Is that we have life, we're given life. But it's not living because all we really have is a moral code that comes with being a Christian. And so that means that I don't drink and I don't smoke. I don't dip snuff and I don't kiss girls who do. That, that's just morality. That's, that's not living. If that's all there is to living the Christian life, Jesus didn't have to die for that. All he had to do was say, just read the Ten Commandments, it'll be okay. So when Jesus comes to her in the midst of a grief-ridden situation that was really all about survival for those two ladies, the breadwinner was gone from their family. 
Jesus says in the midst of that, I am the resurrection. I am the way you move from death to life. And he says a mouthful. That's why I think when he gets to the tomb, knowing who he is and knowing what he's able to do and knowing what he's about to do, he sees these people mourning over that and he's outraged by that because they just don't get it. I am the resurrection and the life. He is the fix, the cure for sin's curse. And apart from him, there's no fix. So let me just stop for a minute and ask you, are you living that truth? He says to her and he says to you and he says to me, I am the way you move from death to life. The curse of sin on your life is death, nothing but death. But I'm the way from death to life. I am the resurrection and the life. Is that yours? If it's not yours... It can be. I just take it even a step further than that. It's not just that it can be. Jesus wants it to be yours. He wants you to live. But you see, when we live under the curse of sin and we're worshiping all kinds of stuff around us and sin separates us from God uh, and and we, we miss that in life, life's a drudgery, life's work. But as we saw last week, Jesus comes and he says, I'll give you life and blow your mind. Absolutely blow your mind. So all it takes is, is a surrender from us. I'll come back to that in just a second. But let me give you one other element of that. All of this comes together for me in, in this statement. We need to be repositioned. Our, our soul GPS coordinates probably need to be shifted a little bit here. Um, any of you playing Pokemon Go still? Y'all a bunch of liars. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't call you a liar. Uh, I, I thought Pokemon Go was over. You, you, you know what I'm talking about, Pokemon Go? I know a lot of us do, but some of you may not. So uh, it's basically a game, and it has to do with GPS coordinates and all that stuff. And so uh, somewhere, somebody, some smart person, I guess, I don't know, uh, made our church location one of those places where you're supposed to go get other stuff. And so for, uh, I don't know, for about four or five months during the Pokemon Go craze, we had people, all kinds of people around the church, right? And it was a weird deal because you walk out and somebody's walking through the property over there. And uh, so I started packing in those days. And so um, uh, I thought all that was over. And uh, so last week, I came out of a meeting, it was late at night, and I was the last one to leave, locking everything up. And as I'm leaving out, uh, I noticed that there was a car that was parked in our parking lot out there, and they were moving around. I mean, they would go up about 100 feet and stop for a little bit and maybe go turn around and go back to the other side and, you know, start on that side. and forth. So I just kind of sat and watched them a little bit, and the deacon who's here with me went ahead and drove off, not worried if I would be okay, but... Uh, <laughs> So finally, I thought, I'm going to put a stop to this. You know, we had some people steal some of our air conditioner copper a while back, and I thought, oh, we're not having any of that. So I just, uh, I pulled over and I cut them off as they were trying to get out of our parking lot. And, uh, well, then this lady by herself rolled her window down. I thought, okay, this is uncomfortable. And um, I said, uh, can I help you? 
And she just held up her phone and she said, well, I'm playing Pokemon Go. And so that dawned on me, okay, the reason she was moving around like that is because she had to be in exactly the right spot in order to get the character that she was looking for or whatever, however that works, right? So she had to reposition in order to get what she needed, okay? That's Lord's Supper, okay? What we're about to do is a repositioning tool so that we get all of this resurrection and the life back in its proper position. You, you can't do this that we're about to do unless you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Okay? The whole thing about Jesus dying on the cross and being sin's cure, uh, the curse of sin is cured through him, the, the whole thing hinges on him being the Son of God. And so if I dismiss him as the Son of God because I want to call the shots in my life today, then I probably shouldn't do this. Because this is a reminder that he is God, not me. Okay? Now, I don't want you to hear me say that and then say you can't do that. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it needs to be a repositioning time. This needs to be that moment where we step into the Lord's Supper and go, okay, God, I need to get triangulated in the right way so that my spirit is right in doing this. How we approach this positions us, or at least it reveals our position. Acknowledge that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Acknowledge that his sacrifice on the cross purchased for us life. Acknowledge that we need to submit to him. It is a surrender act all the time. That's why Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let a person examine himself before doing this. It would be a mockery of the cross. It would be a slap in God's face if we came to this with the idea that says, it's just crackers, it's just grape juice. That is true. It's just crackers, it's just grape juice. If you want wine, you've got to find it somewhere else today. But it's more than that for us. It's a positioning tool. So, where are you today? In the GPS that measures your soul's position, don't be like the kid over at the organ, approaching this just to kind of see what it's about. Come at this with full awareness and understanding of the statement that Jesus made to a sister who had lost her brother, I am the resurrection and the life. Only through me do you move from death to life. And we celebrate that. As a matter of fact, celebrate's a weird word for us to use here. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Well, what is it that we remember? Let me ask you to bow your heads, if you will. Ask our deacons to come on up, and we begin the Lord's Supper itself. But in doing this, let me ask you and give you the opportunity to respond to the invitation that Jesus himself gives you, an invitation to life. This is 
the opportunity for us to say, Jesus, I believe that I don't have life without you. I believe that my sin has separated me from you and from the life that you give. And I need forgiveness for that. I need to get that whole part of my life straight. If that's you today, we could make it complex and all that kind of stuff. But let me just boil it down to this simple thing. It's a simple prayer. It's, it's going to God and saying to him, Jesus, I believe that I need you. If I'm going to have life, I only find it in you. My sin keeps me from that. I want life. And so I bow my knee and acknowledge you as the son of God who gives me life. Please forgive me. Please give me that life. It's that simple. Okay? But that also opens the door for a whole life of walking with him. What we do in this is a reminder of us of the need for Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. So for all of us here, those of us especially who have accepted him as our Savior long since, we still need to be repositioned from time to time. Where are you today as it relates to this? Father, take this time, be glorified in it is our prayer in Jesus' name.